Welcome to Fragments of Fear, a podcast where we deep dive into the lesser discussed and celebrated jelly. My name is Peter Imstad, and on lockdown in Edinburgh, my co-host... Rachel Isbeth. How are things in Edinburgh, Rachel? They're rather dull, to be honest with you. Still in lockdown, I think it's been... I had to Google it because I have no concept of time anymore. I think it's been nearly a month. Yeah. It's yeah. It's just when you start to dwell. You're like, when was the last time I saw my family or my friends? And, you know, it's been a long time. But yeah, I mean, I've got lots of, to keep me occupied. So that's something I can't really complain. It's more just trying to like work out how to do things and do things differently and adapt to all of the changes. Yeah, not much of a social life at the moment. No, I think my social life is now all on Zoom practically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I haven't seen my family for like a month month and a half I think yes. something like that it's so long how are how are things yeah. in Stockholm because you're being hailed as like the different country um Sweden's being hailed as a different country even yeah no, the lockdown is not quite as strict here and but the weather is getting better as well so people are going outside and going to like pubs and stuff which is probably not great but I think we're doing okay but I think people are struggling with it a little bit we, yeah. we're doing okay that's good you're doing okay it's, it's almost like test of your mental strength isn't it a bit trying to not go mad with cabin fever inside yeah no i wouldn't struggle i mean if i didn't have to go to work i'd be quite happily locked up and just watch films and try to catch up on the books that i haven't read and stuff but with three kids there's not that much going on in that at the moment so it must be so difficult with like little ones i can't imagine yeah it's a little bit of a challenge but luckily there's nintendo switch so we're doing okay <laughs> thank god for that nintendo switch that you bought <laughs> Yeah. So have you been have you been watching anything new? Oh, this is really embarrassing. I feel every time I go on this podcast, instead of like saying something decent that I watched, I have to say something really embarrassing. But um because like I mentioned Zoom and that's like my friends and I are going on Zoom and we're doing a lot of like watch parties, you know, where you Yeah. There's one like Netflix party or you can just cast things or whatever to each other on Zoom. Um so my sister and I watched Grease 2 last night. Oh. I haven't seen that. <laughs> I know. I was like, I've never seen it before. I think I sw- watched it for five minutes and switched it off as a child. So that's what we were watching, and it was really awful, but like in a good way, like that way that you can have a laugh and take your mind off things. Um, so yeah. that was that was good. And before that, I just watched um, Tinto Brass's Action, which is completely different to Grease Two, <laughs> yeah. different sides of things. So at least a bit Eurocult related. Yeah, exactly. I was like, I think it was because of this podcast that was the reason that I watched it, and I was really glad that I did. And I never really heard much about the film. I kind of forgot it existed, but it's very interesting. Lots of interesting imagery. So I think I shared something about that on Twitter today, and I'll probably share a few other things. Uh, but that's yeah, my eclectic watches of the last twenty four hours or so. Yeah, cool. I haven't I haven't seen that Tinter Brass film. So I have to seek it out. What about you? What have you been watching? Uh, well, certainly no trips to the cinema. And I haven't seen that much either, to be honest. It's mostly been watched quite a lot of TV with my wife. And we watched like the new Bosch series and That's good. Homeland and stuff like that. And mostly films in preparation for this. But I did check out the new Network Blu-ray of Seance on a Wet Afternoon, which is a fantastic film that I, I really highly recommend if you haven't seen it. It's got a really unsettling, intense atmosphere. And it's beautifully shot by Joe Turpin and a great sombre score by John Barry and a, a masterclass in acting by Kim Stanley and Richard Attenborough. So I highly recommend it if you haven't seen it. I've not seen that one, but I definitely want to check it out based on your recommendation because it sounds really interesting. Yeah, I think you'll love it, to be honest. So definitely check that out. But otherwise, there hasn't been all that much in the way of new releases. It's been fairly quiet recently due to, to the pandemic and not that many titles that have been announced. But I saw yesterday that um, the Vinegar Syndrome box set of 
the lost, what is it called? The lost Jalo box set? Forgotten Jalo, I think. Forgotten Jalo box sets. I should know that. Yeah, you should. <laughs> it's quite embarrassing. I think that's what it's called. <laughs> uh, it's starting to shift now. So that's good. Uh, but there hasn't really been all that much in the way of new announcements. There's a new label called Cauldron Films, which is co-owned by Jesse Nelson from Diabolic DVD. And they announced uh, that they're releasing Sergio Martino's American Rickshaw, which was previously been out on a quite pricey German edition, as well as the Onetti Brothers' Abracadabra with a CD soundtrack of the film. So those are coming out, I don't know, I think they're, they're due out any any day now, actually, through Diabolic. So that would be quite interesting. And, and I know that they've got... A few more Italian titles lined up, so it be exciting to see where that label goes. Yeah, really exciting. I was quite surprised when I saw that the um, label had been announced, but yeah, two good titles that they've launched with. And I was like one of those people that couldn't really justify buying American Rickshaw um, on the yeah. German Blu-ray just because those media books, like I'm not saying they're not worth the money, but it is quite a lot to spend if you're a bit strapped for cash. So um, it's yeah, nice certainly. to have another version available. Yeah, and I'm going to be one of those people who are going to try to justify picking up another edition of American Rickshaw. <laughs> Your favourite film. <laughs> yeah. No, but mostly to to support Cauldron Films because I think they're onto something exciting there. And obviously go out and support Diabolic DVD in this day and age as well because they need our support. Jesse's like amazing, like the work that he does. You know, he's obviously really passionate about it and launching this label is really brilliant for the community and the preservation of these films and, you know, exposing a new audience to the films so yeah i completely agree people need to go out and support them and pick up those titles yeah i'm sure we'll return to them at some point definitely um, uh, otherwise i don't think there's been anything else yeah, Le Chat qui fume posted something today about having a few new titles lined up, which included another two, Jali, I think. So that'd be interesting to see what that is, because they've they've released a few films that haven't been out elsewhere. Is Knife of Ice so, shipping yet, or is that still...? I think Knife of Ice is shipping now, okay. yeah. That's good. So hopefully it shouldn't be too long. Hopefully some of the titles they're going to release will be ones that we've talked about on here. Yeah, fingers crossed. So... Before we discuss the film, uh, we'd just like to give a special thank you to our new patrons who have very kindly pledged their support to Fragments of Fear. So thank you to Spencer Smallwood, Marek C. Turner, Ryan Link, Ross Hendry, Claire Thomas Witte, and I'll leave Peter to do the Swedish pronunciation of um, Petra's name because I ballsed it up at our prep, so I'll hand that over to you. Uh, big thank you to Petter Rydsjö. Thank you to all of you. Yes, thank you to everyone who continues to support us via Patreon. Uh, we appreciate it's a difficult time and that subscriptions are understandably often the first thing to go. Um, but Peter and I are also trying to do our bit by using our Patreon money uh, to spread the wealth with our creative partners. Um, so if you're interested in listening to our bonus content and want to pledge your support to the podcast, you can head on over to patreon.com forward slash fragments pod for more details. And again, absolutely no pressure. We're just happy to have you as listeners. So as always, we will be talking about the film in detail, so the podcast will contain spoilers. Consider yourself warned. Tonight we're going to be talking about our first shadow from the 1980s, Carlo Vancina's 1983 film Mystere.
indicative of a marked change in the Italian thriller that occurred in the 1980s. As we've discussed in previous episodes, outside of the golden period of the genre, we start to see Italian thrillers that move away from the established form of the Argento-style Gialli of the early 1970s and start to incorporate other genres and ideas into the mix. So we see this fusing of the poliziotechi with the shallow, or the more overtly erotic with the shallow, and we have these more experimental offerings which some people describe as quasi-shallow. But by the time the 1980s arrived, the landscape that the original Gialli were a product of had radically changed. The original Gialli were born from the years of lead, which was an incredibly volatile period in Italian history, characterised by social and political upheaval. And the years of lead, I suppose, didn't really end until the late 1980s. But by the time Mysterio came out in 1983, as I said, the landscape had changed quite a bit. Italy, like many Western countries at the time, was experiencing radical changes economically and was rather prosperous in the 1980s, entering into the 1990s. And at one point, it usurped France and the UK to be the fourth most prosperous economy in the world. So many people consider these to be boom years, characterised again, like many other Western countries of the time, by yuppie culture, rampant materialism, high glamour, luxury and technology. And Vancina as a director was fascinated by the emergence of this new social class and these social changes. And most of his films depicted the lifestyles of this new prosperous group, such as his 1986 film Yuppies and its follow-up Yuppies 2, alongside Via Monte Napoleone and his thriller films of the 1980s. Now, Mysterio is the first film in what I would dub as Vancina's Call Girl trilogy, alongside Nothing Underneath from 1985 and Squirrel from 1996. Now, Mysterio takes place in Rome, whereas Nothing Underneath takes place in Milan, as does Squillo, and Nothing Underneath is very much indicative of Milano de Beer culture in Italy, which I won't get into on this podcast, but it's very much that yuppie culture that was centred in Milan. So Mysterio has elements of this glamorous 1980s lifestyle that was popular at the time, And it has more, I suppose, international elements, again reflecting other cinematic trends of the period. So it shows a move away from the more traditional shallow that's very much reflective of the early 1970s into something different and more contemporary. So as a director, Vancina managed to capture the cultural zeitgeist of the era. His films were indicative of that Milano de Beer culture that was prominent in 1980s Italy. And it's important to remember that when we examine the thrillers of the era, and we have to keep in mind that we are in a different era, and if the Shallow is celebrated for its depiction of modernity and stylistic excesses, it should mirror the stylistic excesses and the sociocultural facets of the period that it exists within. I think it's really good that you mentioned that it's taking place in a different era than the 17s films and that you need to watch these films through slightly different glasses than how you watch the 70s thrillers as well as be aware of that and appreciate them for what they are rather than than what they aren't if you understand what I mean. Yeah, no, absolutely. When I read kind of consensus online, it always tends to be with the later period, Shally, that people are disappointed that they aren't like the early 1970s thrillers or they don't like the style, like stylistic choices and whatever. But again, they're a product of their time. Like any films, you know, they just, with a film, it embodies the era that was made in. It's even like something stupid. Like when I was watching a film last night with my sister, we were saying, oh, this is clearly actually made in this time period, even if it's trying to emulate another one. Yeah. So I don't think, couldn't have Shelley in the early 1980s that replicated the early 1970s because that was old-fashioned at that point. Yeah, if we talk about the director a little bit, I mean, Carlo Vancina, he was born in Rome in 1951. So if you consider that and you consider some of the other directors we've talked about that were born in the 1930s, it's almost a generation between them. So it's not surprising that the films come out slightly different. Vancina's father was a uh, 
legendary Italian director Stefano Vencina, or more known as Stano, an extremely prolific director with 80 directorial credits. For most fans of Eurocult, he's perhaps most well known for the influential police film Execution Squad with Enrico Maria Salerno from 1972, as well as working extensively with Lucio Fulci throughout the 50s and directing several flatfoot comedies starring Bud Spencer. Carlo grew up with his older brother Enrico in a household that lived and breathed cinema. The people they socialised with and the trips they made off into his father's sets, everything was about cinema. He was obsessed about film and wrote reviews from an early age of all the films that he saw and wanted to become a film critic just so he could see films for free. And the two brothers organised a film club in their basement and projected 60mm Hollywood classics. And Carlo Vincina liked all popular cinema. John Ford, Hitchcock, he was a great fan of The Great Escape, Lawrence of Arabia, as well as Italian cinema by Dino Risi and Antonio Pietrangeli. And when he finished school, he expressed an ambition to work in cinema for his father and specifically on Mario Monicelli's films since he loved Monicelli's films and he was a good friend of the family but Carlo was given quite a hard time on set and treated quite badly perhaps in an attempt by Monicelli to show that he didn't treat the son of Stino any differently and Carlo often came home in tears and he was sent away on missions like stopping traffic miles away from the set and bringing extras by truck at all hours and stuff but he worked on on set of about a dozen films or so in in different capacities before having proved himself as a competent assistant director and in 1972 he married actress Federica Elisabetta de Galliani better known as Ely Galliani, best known as Sean Sorel's daughter in A Lizard in a Woman's Skin. And Vancina made his debut in 1976 with Honeymoon in 3. Him and his brother knocked out films at an impressive pace and they made seven films between 1979 and 1982, mostly comedy or crime comedies. There were big hits in Italy and perhaps not that well known outside the country. Mysterio was his ninth film, the first thriller that the brothers made. Okay, so I'll just give a brief outline of the film for those of you who haven't seen it in a while or need your memories refreshed. The assassination of an American politician in Rome is photographed by German photographer Reinhardt and the negatives are hidden in a cigarette lighter for safekeeping. Whilst being entertained in a hotel by a couple of high-class escorts, Reinhardt is preoccupied and one of the escorts, Pamela, steals the lighter, unaware of its hidden contents. Pamela hides the lighter in her associate Mysterious handbag, but shortly after both Pamela and Reinhardt are murdered by a mysterious assailant armed with a cane that doubles as a knife. Mysterious, next on the murderer's list, is nearly killed in her apartment, but is rescued at the 11th hour by Inspector Colt, who has been assigned to Pamela's murder case. Deciding to work together to uncover the truth behind the murder, Colt and Mysterious uncover a plot between Criminal Pole and the Russian Secret Service, which leads them into a dangerous world of Cold War espionage, double-crossing and glamorous sleuthing. Well summed up as usual. <laughs> I'm just laughing at Criminal Pole. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the slightly off-brand version of Interpol. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those funny, like, yeah, substitutes, isn't it? Yeah. Should we talk a little bit about the main players as well? Yeah. Do you want to go yeah, first? Yeah, I'll start. I'll start with well, our leading lady of the film, Carol Bouquet. Born in Neuilly-sur-Saône, France in 1957, Carol Bouquet studied philosophy at the Sorbonne in Paris before making her screen debut in Louise Buñuel's The Obscure Object of Desire at the age of 18 in 1977. She was mentored by Bertrand Blier and appeared in his 1979 crime thriller Buffet Freud, appearing alongside Gerard Depardieu, who she would act alongside in numerous projects. 
projects and would date between 1997 and 2005. Bouquet's international breakthrough role came in 1981 when she was cast as Bond girl's Melina Havelock in For Your Eyes Only, starring alongside Roger Moore. She was nominated for a Cesar Award for Best Actress in a Supporting Role in 1984 for her performance in Rive Droyat Rive Gauche. Bouquet then won a Cesar in 1989 for her leading role in Too Beautiful for You. Alongside acting, she's also modelled and was the face of Chanel No. 5 between 1986 to 1997. Bouquet continues to act on both stage and screen alongside committing herself to various philanthropic projects. Cool. I didn't know she dated Gerard Depardieu. Yeah, I know. It's a funny one. Well, they've been in so many films together and then obviously they decided to date for quite a quite a period. Next up, Inspector Cole, who was portrayed by Phil Cocchioletti, an American actor born in Greensburg, Pennsylvania in 1953. Cocchioletti appeared in such series as Taxi and Night Riders, as well as smaller roles in films like the Jamie Lee Curtis starring drama Love Letters. And Mysterio was his first lead, and it seems to have been his only role in Italy, as far as I can tell. He went back to the States and appeared in TV series such as Dynasty, Hunter, Sex and the City and The Sopranos, and also appeared in a small part in films like Weekend of Bernie's 2 and Meryl Streep and Alec Baldwin comedy. It's complicated. Cocchioletti is a good-looking man, but he seems to be in the vein of those American actors of the 1980s who appeared in Italian genre films such as Daniel Green and Miles O'Keefe, and they were cast more for their looks than perhaps for their acting ability. He currently runs a video production company in New York. He does seem like a strange choice for casting because like, I looked him up as well and I just thought, oh, that's that's odd that he never really did anything else that was in that kind of vein. Yeah. You kind of wonder how he got that role in the first place. Yeah. I assume somebody liked the look of him rather than perhaps what he'd done before and thought that he'd be a good fit for the role. Yeah. I feel like maybe they were trying to go for someone. Actually, I won't say that because that's a disservice to Tony Misante, but, you know, maybe something of that ilk, isn't it? Yeah. Like casting someone of that ilk. Whereas Tony Misante was quite good actor i'm not saying cochlietti is is bad by any means but i think that some of these guys that appeared in the 80s weren't perhaps classically trained no uh, or quite as quite as versatile as as tony misante well i suppose with misante isn't it? he actually had like quite a few impressive credits to his name and which displayed his acting prior to his um foray into italian cinema but yeah maybe like mod that kind of new yorker darker curly hair you kind of i suppose looks somewhat similar yeah like, not as handsome but yeah, i think you're right i think he was probably based it was based on his looks rather than his acting abilities perhaps then we have John Steiner, who plays Russian agent Ivanov. I'm um, a very familiar face to fans of Italian genre cinema. John Steiner was born in Chester, England in 1941. He was trained at the prestigious Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts in London and began working in British productions in the late 1960s, appearing in the Dudley Moore and Peter Cook comedy film Bedazzled in 1967 and Peter Brook's adaptation of Vice's Marit Sad in the same year, alongside television work such as episodes of The Wednesday Play, Public Eye, Orlando and The Saint, which of course starred the aforementioned Roger Moore. In 1969, Steiner appeared in Giulio Petroni's Spaghetti Western to Peppa, alongside Thomas Miller. Lillian and Orson Welles, which led to subsequent work in Italian productions. Steiner found himself in demand as a character actor in Italy and subsequently moved there, continuing to work predominantly in Italian productions throughout his career as an actor. Steiner has an extensive filmography and has worked in countless genres throughout his career, including the Jago, Poliziotechi, Spaghetti Western, post-apocalyptic film and cannibal cinema, to name a few. Some of Steiner's credits include Tenebrae, White Fang, Violent City, Plot of Fear, Hunters of the Apocalypse, Body Count and A Man Called Blade, and we could 
probably spend the whole podcast just listing John Steiner <laughs> films, to be honest, so I won't say any more. Um, and Steiner collaborated with Italian director Tinto Brass on several productions, including the infamous Caligula, um, Salon Kitty and Action. In fact, Steiner's last cinematic credit was for Tinto Brass's 1991 film Paprika. And for those of you familiar with that film, you'll recall Steiner's rather uninhibited performance from in which he screams, uh, see you next Tuesday, I won't say the word, um, is tasty and indulges in gold, a golden shower. So it seems like a fitting end for a career characterised by memorable character acting. Steiner subsequently gave up acting in 1991 and moved to Los Angeles to pursue a career in real estate, uh, which he proved to be very successful in. Uh, He has a website for his real estate business and in the about section he proudly mentions his extensive acting career and cult cinema status. So it's nice to see that he happily acknowledges his past career and has gone on to be successful in another field. I think he's done a few extras as well on DVD and Blu-ray releases. I'm trying to think which ones, but he's not he seems like he's quite happy to talk about it at least but I've shared on Twitter before but if you go on the web- his website you can see a nice recent photo of him and I suppose not to digress too much but Steiner's one of those actors that brings me so much joy and getting into Italian genre cinema I was always so excited to see him appear in a film and I still always love to see his performances um, so the podcast research um, set me off on another John Steiner binge it's really enjoyable <laughs> to watch yeah I'll just probably watch him in anything because he's so he's so fun as an actor yeah he's excellent he seems like a really nice man as well and I always enjoy seeing him in films whenever he pops up even if it's just in small roles he's one of the great character actors of Italian genre cinema isn't he? Absolutely yeah um, and he's a, he's a fair age now I suppose because I think when I looked up his age well I said 1941 so that puts him as what 79 now is that yeah. right? So I don't know if he still works in his real estate business, but I think the copyright was up to 2017 or something. So he's probably done it to a fair age, at least. Yeah. Um, but it's nice to see that he's happy and was able to go on to something successful. It's like nice to hear a success story. Yeah. And always nice to see people who've left the business and still can look back at happy memories of, of their time in the industry rather than feeling like they've been sidelined or forgotten or... He seems to have a good view on, on his career. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how he views his performances in Tinto Brass's films or those more like edgy films he was in, but he seems to take it all in good grace. I think some people yeah. probably would be a bit embarrassed. Not that I'm saying he should be embarrassed, but yeah, like that aforementioned moment in Paprika, for example. I'm sure, I'm yeah. sure, I'm sure he's okay with it. <laughs> Right, next up is Pamela, who's played by Janet Orgren, who was born in Landskrona in Sweden in 1949, and she entered a beauty contest at the age of 17 and won a red MG car as first prize. But she didn't have a driver's license at the time, so her mother had to drive the car back home. <laughs> she quickly entered the world of modelling and shot covers in Germany and fashion shoots for Dior and glamour shots in Swedish magazines. Italian film producer Franco Cristaldi took notice of her and offered her a three-year contract and she started studying Italian and acting and made her debut in the 1968 film The Two Crusaders, directed by Giuseppe Orlandini. She had quite a diverse career, wanting to work in as many different genres as possible. Quite a lot of it genre films, but also with celebrated directors like Billy Wilder in Avanti and Ettore Scola in The Most Wonderful Evening in My Life, both released in 1972. She appeared in her first Giallo in Giuseppe Bernati's The Killer Reserved Nine Seats in 1972 and is probably most well known for her roles in Lucio Fulci's City of the Living Dead and Umberto Lenz's Eaten Alive. She stopped filming in 1992 and she moved to the States in 1994 where she worked as an interior decorator. Apparently she now lives in the south of Sweden again. 
Well, that's interesting she returned back to Sweden. And it's also interesting that we've both chose, like, the two actors that we've talked about both went to America in the early 90s yeah. and did different careers. I think she divorced her husband and moved back to Sweden. I'm not sure okay. when it was, but she seems to be living in Sweden now. Amy Rice. She's one of those actresses that I always think is younger than she is. Yeah. Like, especially in Mysteria, you would maybe place her as, as younger. And she's one of those actresses as well where, where it feels like she missed out a little bit. She came along a little bit too late. I say that. She made her debut in 1972, but she didn't seem to have all that many substantial roles in genre films, at least. They came along later. Yeah, I know what you mean. There's quite a few actresses that you think if you were just born a couple of years earlier, you started your career earlier, just circumstances, and you probably would have landed more you know starring roles or better kind of supporting roles it's just a shame isn't it because i think she, she like especially in this film i feel like she could easily have had a bigger role yeah and we've mentioned leonora farney as well as one of those actresses that came along a little bit too late to have the better meteor roles yeah unfortunately and that's how it goes there are a couple of secondary characters as well mink who's played by gabriella tinti but it's a small role that doesn't really go anywhere so we, we're big fans of his obviously but we thought we'd save him for another film where he has a bigger role and return to him then right so that brings us up to the film really doesn't it yeah so mysterio was inspired by the french 1981 thriller diva by jean-jacques benix that the vencina brothers had seen and they wanted to make a film in a similar vein the french thriller centers around a parisian postman who comes into the possession of a cassette that implicates a senior police officer as, a, as the boss of a drug smuggling and prostitution racket and mysterio has a similar setup with the negatives hidden in the lighter that falls into an innocent person's hands. Diva was not shot in a realist way. It was lots of mood lighting and dark blue hues and stylish looks and a sort of heightened sense of reality and almost comic book-like setup. And the Vincina brothers, they wanted to tell their story in a quite visual way, concentrating more on the images than, than the script. So, as you mentioned, it's a quite different film if you compare it to, to the 1970s Charlie. Yeah. So, as I mentioned earlier in the discussion of Vincina, it's important to remember that Mysterio came out in 1983 and that this was 13 years after the birth of the crystal plumage and 20 years after the girl who knew too much. So when we talk about a giallo from this era, it is important to keep in mind that the Italian thriller was moving with the times. And I think it's fair to say Mysterio is very much reflective of that. The giallo has always been entwined with the contemporary. So that's why a film like Mysterio can seem radically different from the giallo of the early 1970s, because it's very much its own entity that's incorporating new fashions and not just stylistically, but also new cinematic trends and influences in an effort to create something that deviates from what's gone before it. Um, so like as you said the influence of diva was just as relevant to mysteria as the italian thrillers before it so mysteria initially adheres to the conventions of the shadow before deviating into more of an espionage spy film sort of affair some of the promotional material for the film dub it as an espionage thriller it feels bondish in places Obviously, the casting of Carol Bouquet heightens that connection. Whilst the Jago was often fairly internationalist in terms of the locations utilised and nationalities of its casts, in Mysterio it feels like the international nature of the film is again to line it somewhat with the Bond films, especially the use of Hong Kong as a location, um, which is much more exotic a locale than we typically see in the Jago. Uh, the use of international agencies like Criminal Pole continue to forge this connection with the Bond film. And Steiner's ca character Ivanov is a Russian, and there's evidently a Cold War aspect to the film, which is understandable as we're in 1980. 
1983, where there were heightened tensions between the United States and USSR. So we can see how Vansina is blending contemporary political influences, um, I suppose, where the Russians are the baddies. And I mean, that's not a new thing, I suppose, in the 1980s. You know, that was going on for decades before. But I suppose those heightened tensions made it more relevant to the plot. So again, there's this, this effort from Vansina to bring in what was going on at the time politically, socially, as well as what was going on in the cinema that surrounded him and the cinema that influenced him. So like you say, the diva influence and the influence of things like James Bond films. I'd say the first act is pretty much Jallo based. There's several tropes on display as well with the murder of, of Reinhardt and Pamela. And, and I mean, everybody who knows who's seen a Jallo knows that the scene where Pamela mentions the lighter and takes off in a car saying, I'll tell you later where that will end up. So the murder of Pamela and, and the stalking of Mysterio, they're very much in the Jallo vein, but the killer is revealed fairly early on. And as soon as that happens, like you say, there's a shift towards the more of a conspiracy thriller territory or espionage thriller, I'd say. Yeah, um, it's interesting, like you say, that we have these clear, like, shadow um, elements, like when Mysterious flashing back to what Pamela said, and it's very much in the vein of the bird of the crystal plumage and deep red, but then that's kind of cast aside. Yeah. I suppose the problem is that some people watch the film and they really enjoy the shadow setup, and then it goes in a radically different direction. I guess if you're expecting it to conform to, like, the genre's um, tropes and kind of narrative structure, then you might be disappointed by that. But again, like we said, it's Vancina's attempt to bring innovation to the genre and to try and fuse it with different genres and different styles of cinema that were popular at the time or that he clearly liked. You touched upon the killer there. So I don't know if you can recall when you first watched the film, but did that surprise you when you first watched it? Because I remember it really surprised me to have the killer revealed at such an early point in the film. Yeah, because it's such a Jallo-like setup and you see these two-tone brogues that show up and you think, oh, okay, this is going to be like the central mystery and who's responsible for, for the killings. And then as soon as you see Captain Levy on screen, you just know that it's him. It's so obvious. And then, like, it doesn't take more than 30 seconds. And then he's actually revealed to be the killer. So it threw me a little bit, to be honest. I was wondering where they're going to go with this now. Because that's only, like, what, 40 minutes in or something? Yeah, it might not even be 40 minutes. Yeah, it's really... Yeah, yeah. it's even less than that, perhaps. It might be, yeah, I didn't check. But it does come at a time where you're really not expecting it. And I think in that scene, you know, you were talking about when you see the brogues and the cane and you think like I think he mentions the spider car and then there's like a little bit of like oh well you can start with mine to see who the the murderer is and when you're watching it, because some of the earlier Jali are a bit clunky and they're quite obvious with what the revealed plot point's going to be, you think like, oh, this is such an obvious red herring. So I think that throws you off even more. It's, he's so obviously the murderer, but then he is. So I think Vancina is very much playing with your preconceived notions there, where he yeah. knows the audience is thinking that, you're thinking that, you're thinking it's ridiculous, but then he throws his fan around the works and goes, actually, it's not really relevant at all. It takes this other kind of trap than it was heading towards. Yeah, a completely different direction. And then, like you say, it heads into espionage thriller territory, but you also get a car chase throughout the streets of Rome, as well as a fight scene with nunchucks. And, and in the end, there are elements from all sorts of genres. So it really feels like a an everything but the kitchen sink approach in some ways and in, in wanting to touch on quite a few genres, probably from a commercial aspect as well, that you want to appeal to sort of all audiences. Yeah. And the fact is his first thriller, I suppose, that he wanted to put in all these things that he was inspired by and that he thought would be cool on screen and interesting plot points. So it, yeah, like you say, it's a bit of a throw everything but the kitchen sink at it and I think a lot of it does work and I know some people would probably disagree with me I mean I think things like the nunchucks kind of throw you off a bit it's unexpected yeah. but yeah I think he weaves his influences in fairly well 
I mean, it is like I said, it's James Bondish, obviously, in Carol Bouquet's casting, like the car chases, the international, like more jet set style and locations in your traditional shadow, but it doesn't feel really derivative of Bond at the same time. No, no, not at all. Because the focus is on the theater rather than, you know, like a secret agent type. And Colt's just your average detective, so to speak. I suppose it all depends on, like you say, if you go into the film expecting a, like your bog standard Jallo, this might throw you and you might not enjoy it at all. But there are set pieces here that you will enjoy in the first half of the film, then it becomes something else. But I mean, it ended up being quite influential, I'd say, in terms of where the Jallo would head in the 1980s. Wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think you can certainly see that Fancina takes ideas from Mysterio and incorporates them into Nothing Underneath and Squillow. Like I said, I would personally refer to these three films as his Call Girl trilogy. He obviously has this fascination with these Call Girl characters and prostitution and this high glamour world of the 1980s and all the excesses that the decades usually associated with. Um, so yeah, you can see the genesis of a lot of those ideas here and then they're maybe explored more in his later films. I mean, Underneath is more of conventional shallow, I would say. Oh, certainly in this but it's him just yeah exploring those different ways that he can go with things in some ways it feels like this film is testing the waters a little bit because the giallo genre had become increasingly violent and quite sleazy and grubby in an effort to shock the audiences with the entries like Sister of Ursula, Giallo Venice, Play Motel, Delito Carnale and culminating with the New York Ripper and the Vancina brothers took it in a completely new direction much more inspired by the 80s like you said and they feel like they're much more geared toward a mainstream audience than those previously mentioned thrillers. This was a film that uh, more of a high-end product that belonged in a prima visione cinema something that you could bring the family along to and not something for the sort of raincoat brigade. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point because I was thinking that when I did my piece about the background information about the film and when you look at the mid to late 1970s and early 80s, as you said, with New York Ripper, the genre did get very sleazy and I think you can only go so far in that direction when you're kind of bordering on softcore almost like yeah. pornography so then it was a chance to pull away a bit from the sleazy side I suppose you would some people would say well there is sleaze to a certain extent because we're talking about you know like the world of prostitution obviously it's sex centred but yeah it's away from that like you say the grubby raincoat brigade and to something a bit more high class and how he approaches it yeah and Mysterio is arguably less violent than many of its predecessors as well it's probably less violent than Vincina's nothing underneath I say and I don't know if you'd agree with me on this but I, I don't think Vincina is as preoccupied with violent set pieces as his contemporaries and when you compare Mysterio to thrillers of the same period such as Lamberto Bava's A Blade in the Dark in 1983 and Filch's Murder Rock in 1984 there does seem to be less emphasis on the extremities of violence and more on the glamour of the period and I suppose that just aligns with Vincina's filmography in general but especially the comedies of the 1980s and I was looking at the Italian review of his 2011 film Soto Il Visito Niente that Ultima Sifilata, probably got that wrong pronunciation-wise, which was the supposed final film in the Nothing Underneath trilogy alongside Nothing Underneath and Too Beautiful to Die. And the reviewer criticised Vancina's style and said he was very much stuck in the 1980s. And I can definitely see why like the reviewer said that, but that's what makes his 1980s film so successful, as we've already discussed, is that they capture the period they were made in. So Vancina's preoccupation
combination with those elements potentially means less of a focus on the violence and more towards the glamour. And when I say glamour, I don't just mean in relation to the fashions, but more that overall luxury associated with spy cinema, I'd say. Whilst I appreciate the lack of violence may deter some people, as we've said, like, you know, it might not be what somebody that's more of a shallow purist might not like it. I don't think it's a bad thing that murder set pieces aren't featured more prominently. There's plenty of other set pieces to enjoy. And of course, there is some brutality in the film, like with Hamill's murder when he wipes the blade on her white pants yeah. at the moment, which feels a bit more like in the vein of those aforementioned films. Yeah, that's that's certainly a moment that wouldn't fall in favour with the with the senses. Certainly not in the UK. Yeah, definitely not. That, that kind of shot. I just think it's interesting that that you talk about it, that he wasn't as preoccupied with like the set pieces, the violence, or or the nudity. I mean, the prostitution and that setting is not particularly sleazy. In fact, it feels very much like a pretty woman type of view of prostitution is not really featured that much. Uh, is not showing the dark side of of that profession all that much. More the glamorous sides of it and considering it's a film about prostitution I mean it's surprisingly chaste there are three sex scenes within the first 20 minutes but none of them are showing any nudity really and according to Enrico Vencina Carol Bouquet's reluctance to shoot sex scenes might have been one of the reasons for this but I also think that the Vencina brothers were coming from comedy backgrounds and I wonder how much that that played into it as well that there's not a heavy emphasis on on murder set pieces and on the sex side if that's something that they would develop because like you say there's more of both murder set pieces and sex scenes and nudity in nothing underneath yes i wonder no so maybe it was just them sort of settling into a new genre yeah because a little bit as well yeah i I think that's a fair assessment i mean to me i find it quite surprising that it is their first hour because it's i think it's of a decent quality isn't it and it's enjoyable and it hits a lot of its marks and well paced has lots of interesting set pieces and good characters so yeah I mean it's interesting that it was their first one and obviously they developed that further with nothing underneath which I suppose is more of your classic kind of 1980 shallow maybe the definitive one outside of the main directors I would say yeah but you touched upon uh, prostitution there and I think like yeah. you raised some really interesting points about how it was quite a, it's quite a chaste affair so prostitution and high class escorting is obviously a major component of the film and we have that image of the prostitutes by the side of the road at night, um, often in the shallow. Um, and that's one we're all very familiar with. And they're always kind of frequenting places like city environments, like parks and dodgy areas in the side of the road. Or they're in, you know, the police station. It's almost played for a laugh a bit. Yeah. They're waiting to be charged. Um, and I suppose as characters are often related to low level crime. And a lot of the time they're nameless murder victims or they facilitate a predilection of a killer with certain sexual peccadilloes or they happen to see something they shouldn't have and either that leads to their murder or you know it's just like a plot device but here we are in the 1980s a decade where we often see the image of a high-powered woman that's transposed into the world of prostitution here so Vincina is exploring the more glamorous side of the profession and that's a common theme in Vincina's thrillers in general where sex rings and high-class prostitution often feature and you talked about the modeling aspect and modeling is a, a feature of the shadow it's one that we always associate with it the high fashion and here like Vancina is trying to blend the world of prostitution with high fashion which he arguably does so to a greater extent and nothing underneath where we've got the fashion show at the station and more model characters but you can certainly see the blending of the call girls with the modeling world and he kind of sees them as one and the same. Vancina explores the alternate alternative glamour side to the profession. Mystere and Pamela wear expensive clothes and they're typically found in Via Veneta, which is one of the most famous and expensive streets in Rome, so a world away from the side of the road where 
people would be entertaining their clients. And their clients are wealthy businessmen, they're stylish yuppies, and even Reinhardt, who Pamela describes as fat and ugly in German. I think that's what she said. Yeah. I apologize to our German listeners. It seemed quite harsh. <laughs> Um, but even like Reinhardt can afford to entertain the prostitutes at the Sheraton Roma, which was a luxurious newly opened hotel at the time. Um, and that would have been the height of glamour and sophistication. I imagine for people watching it, that would have been really desirable to be able to stay at a hotel like that. And they fraternise in private clubs with boxers and wealthy businessmen as well. So it's a rather different portrayal of prostitution that we're used to in the shallow. And I suppose another film that seeks to do something similar would be Franco Freni's Sweets from a Stranger from 1986, which again tries to give a more sympathetic, nuanced portrayal of those who perform sex work and exploring their stories. It's interesting, it's certainly different to see the way it explores the world of prostitution compared to what we've previously seen in the genre. Yeah, certainly the more high-end call girl or escort side rather than the street walker, which is what we've seen in most Jelly up until this point, really, isn't it? Yeah. Mysterious seems like a, a woman who plays the, the cards quite close to a chest and like according to Vancina she's very much inspired by the women of film noir mm-hmm. with her, that quite icy demeanour. Yeah, she's certainly a femme fatale type character, isn't she? Yeah, she is. I also think it's interesting that there are like echoes of Clute here with her as the prostitute and Inspector Cole taking on the role of John Clute and obviously he's no Donald Sutherland but there are similarities in between the two films there. Yeah, that's a good observation, actually. I didn't really think too much about it in relation to Clue, but I can definitely draw those comparisons, and I wouldn't be surprised if the Vincina brothers drew inspiration from Clue there. Yeah, but it's not the nice policeman, obviously, fairly early on when he's slapping Mysterio about, and then she should probably have seen a warning sign when she comes to his flat and she sees he's got post-sized photos of himself in the flat. That's that's, that's never (laughs) a good sign, is it? Yeah. Mysterio is quite interesting as a protagonist, isn't she, for a shallow? Um, because she's quite different. I think she cuts a rather different figure to many shallow protagonists. Um, she's got this commanding presence. She's dominant. She's in control. She tells Mink's companion to leave when they're in the private members club. So she's very much in charge and aware of her own worth and desirability. And when Mink threatens her by telling her about what happened to her predecessors uh, when they refused to pay the rent, um, she's just completely unfazed. Um, she positively revels in his threats, referring to them as stories. And I think she says something like, oh, I really enjoy these stories. Yeah. And she's manipulative to a certain degree and drives a hard bargain, very confident in her abilities um, and describes herself as like the best in the business. And she's quite sarcastic as well. And I suppose at times openly quite hostile, especially when Colt's concerned. But I think part of Mysterio's appeal relates to Bouquet's casting. I mean, her appearance really plays into it um, and her characterization. And she's fairly statuesque. I think she's five foot eight. I saw two different accounts. One said five foot six, one five foot eight. So even if she's five foot six, she just has that commanding presence where she seems yeah yeah, very statuesque and quite willowy. And she's got that beautiful poker straight jet black hair. Um, she's obviously a beauty, but she's also quite expressive with it. I mean, she's very good at, you know, her facial expressions throughout the film. She's not just like a pretty face. Um, and she does a good job, as you say, of conveying that icy coldness and detached nature that her character has to possess. And she wields a gun and happily threatens that the Pamela's brother who's chasing her on the underground. And she plays an active role in events and puts her life on the line. Um, and we have that wonderful moment where Levi breaks into her apartment and Mysterio cracks a whip at him which she just happens to own so she uses the tools at her disposal as a high class prostitute Um, so yeah she's a proactive female lead here and one that's very different to many leading ladies of the shallow and her duplicitous nature 
shrouded in mystery is quite fascinating as well because we never really find out who she is and we don't find out her real name or what's led her down this path and um, I love that ambiguity to her character because she's not really despite I'll get into the kind of black and white stuff where there are wardrobe choices later but she's not really a black and white character we're never really entirely sure what mysterious game is are we no I completely agree with you there we don't get anything more of the character she's just she's there but she's she's enjoyable where she is so it doesn't really matter that we haven't got a backstory or know that much more about her you mentioned a few of the scenes there which are my, my favorites when she dismisses that companion of, of Ming in the club I think she's brilliant there mm-hmm. certainly in control and like shows who's boss yeah, it's nice that she's so self-assured because I think it's not even just, I, I'm talking about like, you know, what comparing it to The Shallow, but I think comparing it to a lot of films of this period or even films now, like I was talking about James Bond films earlier, but a lot of the Bond girls are quite passive at that point. And it's nice to have a female character who's very commanding and knows what she wants. And yeah, she's not like some shrinking violet that needs protected. Uh, so in Mystere, we have this unconventional pairing of the prostitute and the cop who have to team up to solve Pamela's murder and foil these nefarious criminals. The relationship is antagonistic. Obviously, we have this bone of contention between them due to their juxtaposing professions, uh, which means they're naturally wary of one another, potentially seeing each other as the enemy or someone not to be trusted. And there's some interesting interplay between the pair, and we touched on it just a few moments ago. Um, Mystere is very cold towards Cole and sabotages his relationship, seemingly for her own amusement. And that relationship is yeah not the best through modern eyes is it <laughs> no one of those things that dates the film quite a bit a bit awkward um but yeah anyway <laughs> Colt's quite disparaging about Mystere as well he says he doesn't do white women he, we have the rather brutal scene where he slaps her which I find really shocking even when I re-watched this and I've seen the film probably like three or four times I found it quite yeah. surprising it's quite a brutal moment but yeah they have quite an unusual relationship it's certainly a memorable one I mean I don't think he's a great actor as I said before but I think they work well together in the context of the film the contrast between their characters and Colt is seemingly impervious to her wiles and mysterious embodiment of luxury and Colt makes this analogy to French food where he says he doesn't like the price of high quality French food um, but mysterious says class has a price obviously referring to herself so we have that juxtaposition between their lifestyles especially their apartments you know Colt lives in this hole and Mysterio lives in this palatial apartment. So yeah, we see these contrasts. Slightly more stylish. Yeah, slightly more stylish. Although she doesn't have a mannequin, which we all know a mannequin yeah. was the height of glamour in the 1980s. Yeah. Like Domino, where you have one like as a kind of butler friend. Um, but yeah, that's quite interesting about Colt's character because he clearly wants a taste of the high life, even though he makes at least disparaging remarks about Mysterio and her lifestyle. He does seem to want that. Yeah. Contrast presented between those who live a life crime but reap the rewards and those who fight it, fight it but um, live a modest life um, and Colt's seemingly corrupted and seduced by that lifestyle he says he isn't interested in Mysteria but he's clearly taken in by the sort of lifestyle she leads he also sees the corruption of his boss and he kind of goes down a similar path I'd say um, so despite supposedly fighting against that sort of corruption and crime he ends up getting embroiled in it and taking the money even though it's morally a bit ambiguous and not playing by the rules grants him this life he could never have envisioned in this tiny flat in Rome and Mysteria seemingly holds the cards and is in control of the relationship but he's the one that abandons her in favour of the money. I think you kind of feel like Mysterio's going to have the upper hand, but yeah, he's the one that goes off and leaves her um, by herself in the airport. And the ending suggests that Colt's days may now be numbered, and I think we'll touch on the ending in a bit. But yeah, I think there's a sense that Colt's not a great character and that he's probably going to get what's coming to him. So it's presented as a a happy moment, but not really, because it's 
short-lived their romantic reunion. Should we should we talk a little bit about the the set pieces? The only other thing I had is I had similarities with Squiddle, but that was mainly just the cat. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, oh, it's like a cat, and the cat doesn't die, so that's good. Um, but... Yeah, that's the notes I've got. Cat does not die, <laughs> exclamation mark. <laughs> the first thing is obviously the, the opening set piece with a JFK-style murder of the American politician or president or whatever it is on the, on the Spanish steps. How do you feel about that, that one? I really like the opening set piece. I think it's really memorable. Um, I like how it harkens back to a political event that's actually happened and it, it, yeah. and it kind of ties it more to the contemporary and like the political world. You've got that frame of reference of something that's happened in reality. And it's such a wonderful setting, the Spanish Steps, isn't it? Yeah. You know, like the definitive place in Rome, one of the definitive places to visit. So Yeah, yeah certainly a place that even if you haven't been in Rome, most people are going to recognise it. Absolutely. Well, do you like it? Do you think it works well? I think it works well. I think it, it's an intriguing way to start off a giallo because it's not something that you would normally get. So already from the very beginning, it's lot, it starts off in a slightly different way to a conventional giallo. Um, but I think it works well. I think it's... I like that kind of accident. Him accidentally taking a photo of of Ivanov and all that Hitchcockian aspect of it. I think that always works well. I suppose the shadow element there that comes in is that idea of like the series of unfortunate events that leads like the character of Mysterio to get involved. So you know he accidentally photographed Ivanov, and then Pamela just happened to be there with Reinhardt in the hotel and stole the lighter, and then nobody knows the meaning of like it's not like she knows what the lighter is, so it's just sets a chain of events in motion um but yeah like you say that's like a lot more hitchcockian isn't it in nature the political assassination at the start it's not something we would associate with the shallow but that's why it's why it's no. nice that we have all these different influences that come together like you say like the the diva influence and james bond and spy films and all sorts so like like obviously yeah Fantina was a massive fan of cinema yeah the next two set pieces the murder of reinhardt and the murder of pamela they're quite conventional in terms of giallo and and the next set piece as well which is when mysterio is alone and is attacked by the killer i think that's the set piece that probably works the best for me and she turns off all the lights and the killer is stalking her and she takes off onto the roof with the killer on her heels, ending up hanging off the edge of the roof with a whip when Cole comes to her rescue. So I think that's that's probably the most, to me, the most well-realised set piece in the film. Yeah, absolutely agree with you on that. And I really love the way that like Vancina uses light and shadow and plays with darkness. And I'll get onto that with the production design, but I think there's really effective settings in the film. And, you know, like how light's used in that scene where she lands on the glass roof and then the lights come on yeah. and it exposes her and we have the, the torch and exposing different things in the room. And yeah, I think that's a really effective moment. Like, I think it's really clever how that's done stylistically impressive i would say yeah i mean the other set pieces work but not as well as this i think it's, it feels like the most thought out set piece i think yeah i mean it's it's quite conventional you know someone trying to break into somebody's apartment i mean we see that in countless thrillers and horror films but i think yeah it's just filmed in such a way that it's, it's really effective and then the way that the action moves onto the rooftop and again that doesn't feel so much like a shadow like the way she holds on with the whip and then yeah. um colt come appears and saves the day um yeah so it's just a little bit different 
I think the only other thing I've got a bit about the underground sequence. Same here. How do you feel about that one? I think it's just another really memorable scene for me. And I, I just really like scenes that take place in undergrounds. I know you love scenes that take place in dark rooms. I think if my favourite like cinema setting would be an underground. Yeah. And I love it when we see it in an Italian film. It reminded me a bit of Diodato's 1988 film, Dial Help, which is really similar in terms of like, I think it's the same locations that it uses. And um, when we see Charlotte Lewis running down a travelator and up an escalator and things so I really like the use of those like underground elements to stage the action but I mean it doesn't add much plot wise I just think it uses the setting really well and it keeps that fast moving pace of the film like as we said it's it's well paced and I think it's just something that adds a bit of intrigue and suspense even if it doesn't amount to much what did you think about it? Did you like it? Yeah, I, I really love a good subway sequence as well. And it feels like this is perhaps inspired by, by Diva. There's a similar sequence. Well, there's a chase sequence in Diva by Moped. Mm-hmm. And it feels like this was perhaps slightly inspired by that. And I think it works really well up until the point where it's revealed who it is. Because it feels, to me, it feels really anticlimactic that the guy that is following her is Pamela's brother. And you think that the actor least likely to be the brother of Janet Wagner ever. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't look like her at all. But I think the sequence up until that point works really well. So I'm just sort of slightly disappointed that they didn't make better use of it because you feel a little bit cheated at the end is like a is like a jump scare yeah it does feel a bit anticlimactic doesn't it i think yeah it it achieves its purpose in ticking the keeping the action ticking along but um yeah it doesn't really add anything they probably could have handled it in a slightly better way and like you say i think it's almost like diva on a budget isn't it it's like they saw that impressive scene with the motorcycle going down the stairs and like along the um platform they just thought well we can't get the permission to do that so we'll just do it slightly differently but i I do i do wonder if diodato saw that because it is so like if you compare them they're so similar in terms of staging probably not i don't know I haven't seen Dial Help for a long time, so I have to go back and look at that. I'll do a Twitter comparison. We'll do that. We'll see. Yeah. (laughs) So should we talk about the ending, or have you got any other set pieces? Yeah, let's. Let's Let's. do the ending. That's a good idea. So, and well, the film ends with Colin Mystere kissing on a junk, seemingly free from Ivanov and the political spy games they've been embroiled in. But however, we then cut to a shot from the perspective of a pair of binoculars, and it's revealed that the person looking through them is Ivanov's assistant, who is watching Colin Mystere from a helicopter overhead, and he grins and points, and the helicopter descends, and then we get a Chinese proverb that appears on screen, which translates to what goes around comes around. Um, so it's a rather ambiguous ending, with Mystere and Colt's happiness seemingly about to be short-lived but I think it's a fitting ending for their characters and the themes presented throughout the film they're interesting characters as they themselves are presented rather ambiguously and we're never quite sure of their motivations or who they are as people so it seems fitting that their greed may come back to haunt them Um, but we're also aware of greater machinations at play on a governmental level so I suppose it's inevitable that they're going to be pursued for their involvement in the events of the film and it doesn't really matter where they go they'll never be free so I think the ending's pretty effective um, in regards to the film's espionage slant and it allows you to somewhat speculate on what happens next and what caused the events um, that led to the initial assassination attempt. It's not the ending that the Vincina brothers had had written it was originally supposed to have the more downbeat ending with Mystere being ripped off by Cole to take 
takes off for the money, but producer Geoffredo Lombardo wanted a happier ending. Vanzina claims that Lombardo was a great producer, but they had like this ancient vision of film that, that it should always have a happy ending. So he was the one who posed the Hong Kong epilogue where Mr. Finds Cold, not to have a revenge on him for taking the money, but to declare her, her love and then getting attacked by Ivanov. So I think it would be quite interesting to see because the, the airport ending occurs at like 1.14 in, into the film. So you wonder a little bit on what other changes were made to the film considering it's a relatively short film as it is so i wonder if there were any plot points that they removed or how much this changed around from what was originally written by the vancina brothers i feel like there might have been some changes i mean the, the hong kong epilogue is slightly clumsy isn't it it doesn't quite hang together compared to the rest of the film and yeah i, I mean i don't know if you'd agree but i do think it's quite an ambiguous ending i, I think it kind of looks like a happy ending but is it really left a bit open-ended i would say it doesn't feel like it's a, a happy ending as such the main problem i've got with the ending is not that they're transposed to hong kong and what transpires there is it's mainly got to do with mysterious and her as a character because i mean is she just going over there and declaring a love to get back at him and to take the money because that was perhaps more in line with the character rather than her just coming over there and declaring a love for Colt. Yeah, I agree with you. Like, I think it, it would be much better if that was the case, if she was in, the, in it for the long game and trying to get the money back and it was like her one-upping him. I think the thing of she's in love with him now, but he's the one that holds all the cards and shafts her just seems a bit... I don't know. Obviously, that's the original I mean, ending they were going for. It's just interesting when you see her as quite a commanding presence and, you know, the focus of the film. And then for it to be almost like Colt wins is not great. I mean, if you saw her being left at the airport by him and him taking off, you could assume that she would be going after him, trying to get the money back. I mean, to me, she wouldn't have ended up feeling like a victim at that point. But if you just look on the surface level here, where she goes over to Hong Kong and she says that, but I love you, that doesn't seem to be in line with how her character is presented throughout the film so you kind of you want her to win don't you yeah i know so that's the thing you're rooting for her so you sort of i'm not sure if it's us reading too much into it but i, I kind of feel like you said you you hope that she's in it for the long game but i think you know like what you said there if it was a case that they ended in the airport and Mysterio was going to get her revenge and it was played like that, that would be probably a much more effective ending because it positions her as like the strong one, doesn't it? And she's off to get her revenge yeah. as opposed to just being at lovelorn in the airport and that's the end. So I suppose yeah. it'd be interesting to see like a script or what they what they proposed. But with, with the ending that we've got, I just feel like they're both going to get their comeuppance, aren't they? Yeah. It's almost like, you know, crime doesn't pay in a way. Like it show, the whole film shows that crime pays like and people get away with things and they can do what they want and then, yeah, so it feels like they'll never escape the clutches of you know Ivanov's associates or there'll be someone else waiting in the wings so I feel it wouldn't speculating on what would happen next I don't think it would be something positive from that ending no and the events leading up to them being on the boat is that they're trying to get away from Ivanov and they're using the body of Captain Levi <laughs> in quite a quite a creative manner do you want to go into that yeah no it's very interesting like obviously because Captain Levi meets his demise in the film but that's not like the end of his character and it's quite clever how the film brings him back and we see you know so he dies in the bath he's electrocuted in the way that he says he's going to kill Colt but then Mysterio in order to throw even off off the scent dresses up his body as herself so he's got the wig on she puts all the the makeup on as well and lies him down on the bed so even off stabs him thinking it's Mysterio but in actual fact it's the dead body of Captain Levi so that's quite a clever bit of work that Mysterio does and it's quite funny for the audience to see that it's in fact Captain Levi. Yeah and then when when Ivanov has stabbed the body thinking it's Mysterio 
here. They then move him to Colt's car and he's then shot by Ivanov, thinking that it's Colt that he kills off. So, in effect, he's killed three times in less than 24 hours. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Poor man. Poor Levi. Well, not really. No, yeah, not really. He wasn't a very nice man, but still. It's quite funny. It's quite interesting how they do that, how they bring the body back twice. I don't know if even yeah. off the smartest. I mean, he's supposed to be like intelligent spy, but probably wasn't his finest moment not checking to see that it was Mysterio. And then he's gone through one of our favourite ways to go for a killer in a jello. Falls out the window, doesn't he? Yep, he falls out a very high window and lands on a car. And we see John Steiner's lifeless body falling, falling to the floor, well, falling to the ground. He doesn't have much luck, does he, as a character? Whatever character he's playing, he doesn't tend to survive in a lot of these films. No, poor man. It's a shame, though, because I really like John Steiner and I feel like he could be used more in this film as well. It's not his story, but that's one, like, criticism I'd have is I'd like more John Steiner. Yeah. You never have enough John Steiner. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Should we get into... um like the production history and production design and those kind of aspects. Yeah, you go on. The film was made by a production company, Trees Films, and it started shooting on May 23rd, 1983, on location in Rome. The film was shot in English and was said to be distributed by Titanus Films in Italy and with Intra handling the foreign sales. Apparently, Giofredo Lombardo thought it would be one of the season's highest appeal for crossover success. So high hopes for the film. It was shot by Giuseppe Mar- Macari, who was an experienced camera operator but hadn't worked as a director of photography more than a handful of times, and edited by Raimondo Crociani, who was an experienced editor and had worked since the early 70s and had edited films like Sergio Martinez, Suspicious Death of a Minor, and Ettore Scolas, who loved each other so much. That's about it for the production history. But then we move on to production design, and I assume you've got a fair amount to say. I know you're going to have to deal with me wittering on. I, w- I probably will try and write a blog post because I feel like. Like I can't talk about everything that I'd want to or it doesn't work so well in a podcast but I'll try and limit it to a certain amount and hopefully it's not me droning on but we'll see um <laughs> So, as we mentioned, Mysterio predominantly takes place in Rome. Infancina perfectly sets the scene with the assassination attempt that takes place at the Spanish Steps, an Italian twist on the Kennedy assassination, and one that evokes memories of Baba's The Girl Who Knew Too Much in its grandiose Roman setting. As mentioned previously, Vancina utilises the glamorous nighttime locations of Rome exceedingly well and manages to convey a sense of danger in amongst the glamorous worlds that Mysterio inhabits. The use of locations such as the newly opened Sheraton Roma, the glamorous members club, and luxurious shopping district the girls work in creates the stylized high glamour world, but Vancina underpins this with the rampant dangerous criminal activity that takes place inside it. In Mysterio, everything has a price. The film partially takes place in Hong Kong, so again we're utilising the glamorous jet-set lifestyle that was typically associated with the Jalo, but we're going much further afield to the Far East. The only other Jalo that springs to mind that utilises such a far-flung location would probably be Flavio Mogherini's The Pajama Girl case from 1977, which takes place in Australia. The Hong Kong location's fairly unusual for an Italian thriller from this era. I know, for example, the Emmanuel films, well, some of them took place in far-flung locales, but I'm struggling to think of another Jalo that does. You might think of one i can't i honestly can't think of one (laughs) not a jalo no No. i think yeah like australia is the only exception but we don't see much of at hong kong bar that wonderful ending shot of the junk with the city framed in the background um but we see enough to have that bondish exotic feel so that's certainly a memorable aspect of the film that sets apart from the jalo of the period production design wise stylistically we're firmly in the 1980s here throughout vancina's filmography we can see the director's fascination with the stylistic excesses of the period and that's certainly evident 
Poseidon and Mystere. Vancina really wants to showcase Bikay's beauty, so we're treated to numerous costume changes that all exude a certain level of glamour. Um, even when we look at the background characters, like the escorts, they're very well dressed. There's lots of jewel colours and metallic, and more ostentatious fabrics like lamy and lace. I think Pamela's wearing a peplum dress, which is very 1980s, isn't it? Yeah. And Mystere herself has a rather monochromatic wardrobe, which perfectly matches her monochromatic apartment and black and white worldview. Often she accessorises her black and white wardrobe with crimson red nails and red lipstick, which gives her such a striking, bold look. Um, and we're treated to a scene early on in the film where we see Mystere apply her makeup and nail polish, getting ready for a night of work. And it has quite a performative feel to it. Um, it's like my mother always taught me, you put on your war paint and face the world. Um, yeah, great advice, thanks, mum. <laughs> and it accentuates this idea in the film that we never quite know who Mystere is. Yes, yeah, she's a high-class escort, but she fits rather well into that intriguing world of international espionage. And she has this transformative quality where she could easily adopt different personas and I know it's not a reference or like it's a bit of a tenuous link, but it made me think, makes me think slightly of Luke Besson's Nikita in that it has that icy, it has that icy detached spy element where we're never quite sure yeah. what's happening higher up. You know, like there's all this stuff going on, like machinations again, but we don't know like the reason behind it, just that it's happening. Um, so you can easily imagine a follow-up film to Mystere where she adopts more of a kind of spy style lifestyle and dons wigs and has more of a transformative nature to her appearance. But as mentioned, the film's action moves to Hong Kong, so we see Mystere adopt a beautiful jade green Cheong Sam, again to highlight the film's setting. Um, and earlier on in the film, she wears a canary yellow dress with a mandarin collar, so again, that gives her wardrobe a bit of an East Asian influence. Um, but we also see those contemporary 1980s fashions that look great on Bikay's willowy frame, and we even see a little bit of 1950s-inspired 80s fashion in her red 50s dress that she dons for her escape to Hong Kong. Um, and one of her most contemporary 1980s looks is, of course, her red lycra leotard, which she wears to exercise in, which truly embraces the decades trend for aerobicide. Um, aerobicide, even not aerobicide, that sounds like some sort of murderous <laughs> aerobics. <laughs> that is like murder, yeah, which, which brings me nicely onto my connection there, which... Also, so the leotards and the dance world also features in, in Filchi's Murder Rock came out the next year. But I could talk a lot about the fashion, so I'll refrain from saying any more about the fashions. Yeah, so I'll try and do a potential blog post in the future. Oh, that'd be good. Um, but I'd also like to note the film's production design and overall aesthetic. It's attached to fair with lots of icy blues and greys and monochromatic colour schemes. There are many nighttime sequences, scenes that take place in the dark, in locations such as parking garages and underground stations. And they heighten that glamorous criminal world that the film takes place in but um it's also an incredibly sleek affair there's lots of mirrored surfaces which again highlight the film's glamour and the styles that we associate more with the 1980s uh, mysterious apartment as i said has that wonderful monochromatic color scheme that even her cat fits into her cat her cat that doesn't die yeah um, and of course we see the home gym equipment there which signifies well but my favorite aspect of her apartment that works so well in the scene where levi breaks in is the wallpaper which mimics blinds and we see someone poking through them which looks incredibly eerie at night when we get that shot of the torch that highlights it and it looks like a person yeah it's great they look a bit like john steiner actually i'll have to look back on that yeah. i'm sure they have that kind of um gaunt look so there's also the place that colt and levi's henchmen meet up in which again features all these mirrored surfaces and candy colored hues which looks fantastic on screen and again very 1980s in terms of its interior design so for those of you interested in 80s design uh, there's plenty of nice offerings here both in regards to fashion and interiors but maybe uh, to a lesser extent with the interiors so lots to appreciate visually this must have been one of the first films where brands are featured so predominantly. I mean, you can see the Ferrari logo, you can see the Rolls Royce. So it's it's obvious that these things are important to Vancina. 
Yeah, it's like in a way that is that it wasn't in the 1970s films. Yeah, it's that idea of you know like brands and status symbols yeah. that he brings into his later offerings, especially like the use of technology and Squillo. And um, I think Squillo's also got you know like Armani advertising and things like that. So yeah, you're right. It, it is a theme that you see throughout his Call Girl trilogy. It obviously doesn't yeah. matter to him. Um, again, more materialistic society. So like my mother always says she's like, oh, the 80s is awful. It's when everyone became really materialistic. The journal is not new to the fashion world, but it's never been. It's never been. At the forefront as it has here yeah and then you get like yeah. nothing underneath with moschino like featuring yeah and it's all branded yeah. and they're local even because even fashion at that point like i'm not going to derail too much but you get all this fashion in the 1980s that is you know it's got the brand logos emblazoned all over it so it's not about the style of the clothes or how it looks it's about telling everyone that you're wearing like Moschino or Armani or whatever so it's very much like that you know keeping up with the Joneses or trying to brag to other people about what you can afford yeah I say that I have a, I have a Versace necklace so I'm probably part of the problem <laughs> <laughs> yeah Versace is another one that's like kind of a, yeah has a lot of their stuff emblazoned on things I'm surprised you did or did you mention the, the fully clothed mannequin that Colt has got in his flat as well or you did earlier I didn't mentioned you? it earlier and I was like yeah I thought I'll leave it at that but you can talk about the fully clothed mannequin <laughs> no it's just so it just seems so weird these days that you'd have a mannequin in your flat but i know it's it's a funny thing like if you look at 80s design it's a lot of like i'm sure you know yourself it's there's like a lot of mannequins in it or like busts or you know put like um a face on your wall a hand yeah also you yeah. know like it's i find it quite unnerving because i think you know like if i woke up in the night and saw a mannequin in my bedroom i would hit the roof i would uh, exactly. go mental but yeah it's a weird design i think it's coming back though I've seen a few examples of it. Not to my flat, it's not. There you go. You could get a mannequin for the bedroom, hang your hats on it, yeah. your, your baseball cap. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to see that happening anytime soon. Oh, God. But if, if any viewers, oh, sorry, any viewers, if any listeners have got a fully clothed mannequin in your flat, then please send us a picture. We'd love to see it. With the hashtag FragmentsPod. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about the music then. The, the score for the film was written by, by one of my favourite composers, the Rome-born Armando Trovacioli. He'd worked with Vancina several times before. He wasn't particularly prolific in the giallo genre. He'd written a score for La Contrafigura in 19, the double in 1971, but his style was sort of better suited to the more breezy, upbeat 60s lounge vibe than the dark thriller scores. But this one is quite different, and to be honest, I would have been hard-pressed to identify this as a Trovacioli score. It's far less sort of playfully melodic than his normal output and at times I think it almost sounds like a Fabio Fritzi score. There are chords in it that you feel could almost come from one of his scores for Fulci's um, City of the Living Dead or The Beyond but it's got almost like a TV twist to it. I think it feels a little bit like a TV score to me. Yeah. It's not bad. I'm not saying it in a like a derogatory way. It just feels, I know, there's something TV-like about it to me at least. There's a great main theme called Mysteria, which is sung by Canadian singer Doreen Hollier, who also released an Italian disco record called Tonight, Crazy Night. I've always had a soft spot for themes that were like lyrics about the main protagonist. Yeah, that's really great when you get one of those, isn't it? Yeah, it's not that often that they come along, but it's good. The score is available on, on CD, so you can find it if you're a fan of it. The film was released in theatres in October 1983, and it made about a billion in domestic box office which is very good box office but not fantastic numbers and like I said considering that that producer Lombardo thought it would be the season's high point and possible crossover success it might have been considered slightly disappointed but solid box office numbers still. 
As Rachel has already mentioned, Van Zina returned to thrillers in 1985 with nothing underneath, but the brothers continued to work primarily in the Cinepanettone Filoni, a moment from the early 80s, which is sort of a blend of classic Italian comedy and the sexy comedies of the 1970s. And it still seems to be popular to this day. It's not a genre that I'm all that familiar with, but films being released around Christmas in Italy, and these are generally looked upon as quite commercial films and not certainly not favourites of the critics and the, in the 80s they were looked at as quite vulgar and sometimes described as the mark of cultural regression of the country. Vincina passed away in 2018 at the age of 67 after having a bout of melanoma and had a star-studded funeral a few days later attended by Pupi Avati, Anna Falci, Matthew Modine and Silvio Berlusconi. He rests at the Flaminio Cemetery in Rome. Died too soon really. I remember when he died I was really surprised. Only 67 and that's no, that's no I mean, age. All these days. No. Just thinking, like, it's just laughing when you're talking about the comedies there because, like, you're saying, oh, cultural regression stuff. And I'm like, that's like, I don't tend to watch most Italian films in that with Murray, but the ones that I watch are like the like Italian comedies like that. Yeah. He seems to really enjoy them. So I don't know what that says. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I can't watch a shadow, but we'll watch some smutty like comedy from like 2010 about football or something. There's so many Italian comedies about like kind of sex comedies about football. Oh, is there? Yeah, I don't. Maybe it's just that I've coming across the same like few, but I swear there's quite a lot of them. Maybe that's a future bonus episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, normally I try to watch as many films as I can from from my director's filmography in preparation for these. But I mean, there was no way, considering how prolific he was and how many films he directed. Is it sixty or something like yeah, that? Yeah, there's a lot. I've seen like a fair few of them, like you know, Millions or Via Monte Napoleone. Like obviously the thrillers. I've seen what other. I've seen like the Yuppies films. God, I made a list of all the ones I've seen. I've, I have seen like a fair chunk, but not like anywhere near all of them because some of them just don't interest me as much. Like because I like stuff from the no. 1980s like I'll, or the early 90s or 70s you know I'm prepared to watch like the kind of sex comedies from those periods even if they're not in English or even if they're not so much my cup of tea because there's other elements that I might like about them like I was watching yeah. um what's it spaghetti a mezzanotte the other day yeah but yeah when it comes to like you know anything post late 90s I'm not bothered although saying that I've seen Carlo Fancina's Banzai which my husband put on and that is something that is has to be seen to be believed. It is shocking. If you think Mysterious racist, like watch Banzai because that is nine ninety seven. It is very bad. Oh, I can just imagine. I'll take your word for yeah. it. Yeah, so that's you can see why Peter doesn't want to like watch the entire of Vincina's filmography when it has things like Banzai in it. It's really not worth spending an hour and a half on. I would assume that a fair few of these haven't got any English friendly versions either. And obviously, if you're watching comedies and stuff. It, it depends a little bit on what type of comedy it is, but you lose quite a lot in, in not being able to fully understand them in Italian. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, as I said, I'll sometimes put them on, but I know that I'm not getting the jokes. And I know, to be honest, like everyone says, that if it was translated in English, I still wouldn't get a lot of the jokes because they they don't translate, obviously. Yeah. You know, there's bits you can appreciate the more slapstick stuff. Obviously, a lot yeah. of it goes over your head. But again, I think, you know, it's something I'm ha- I'm happy to watch or see. Like, oh, look at this interesting thing from the film. But I wouldn't ever really form an opinion on it or, like, review it because, no. I mean, there's no way you can really... You can't really, it. can you? No, you can't. So it's you can only really pick out elements of it. It seems like a lot of Italian comedy has got to do with jokes about the, the different um, accents, the stereotypes about from which city you are and that sort of thing. And that's obviously completely lost on you as a foreigner. Yeah, because I think I remember reading Fabio Testi, like people comment on the fact he's got a certain accent or it's seen as quite regional or something. 
I don't know if he's supposed yeah. to be like the Italian equivalent of being from Yorkshire or something, but like yeah. we wouldn't ever like we wouldn't ever pick up on that. It's something we just don't understand. No. It's, it's yeah. kind of like why we always say that, that we're always learning about these films and there's always things that we're just not going to know because we're not fluent in Italian. We don't live in Italy and we don't we weren't from that time period. It's that thing of you can't really be an expert on that, can you? I mean it doesn't really matter what we learn or what we what we watch. It's just an area that we're never gonna have the expertise on. No, we're missing references as well and that sort of thing. So I think comedy is probably one of the most difficult genres to to understand if you're not native. Yeah, and it's like I think that probably applies everywhere because I mean I don't know about yeah. I mean I'm sure there's elements examples of that even from where you are but even like in the UK I mean there's you know you get that certain strand of Scottish humor that maybe doesn't translate as well in England so there's even that difference there um, I'm yeah. sure it's the same you know in the north of Italy in the south of Italy or you know yeah. Sweden people might think Sweden's like you you're next to Norway but I'm sure that there's like different humor there oh yeah certainly right shall we try to wrap wrap it up with some final thoughts on the film yeah, i don't even know how we got into that that was an interesting discussion yeah <laughs> it's, 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 it's interesting isn't it because it's just talking about an element of these film, like an element of italian genre cinema that we don't touch upon i suppose it's explaining why we don't we'll round up this discussion because we've been going on for quite a while but typ- typical me i'm always like i don't know if we'll be talking as much about this film but we always do no we always end up we always go i don't think we've got that much to say about this film and then we we end up we get sidetracked quite a, quite a few hours later <laughs> yeah. yeah okay i will do my summation of the film so in the discussion of the evolution of the italian thriller mysterio is a title worth mentioning as it's an unconventional giallo with a wonderful leading performance from carol bouquet that eschews previously established thriller conventions in the italian giallo in favor of something more contemporary and respective of trends of the time and mysterio vancina successfully plays with the audience expectation presenting what initially seems as a standard giallo before deviating into james bond style spy film with russian agents and double crossing whilst it might not appeal to the giallo purists who prefer the more conventional trope heavy thriller of the early 1970s, it's sure to interest those who want to see the development of the genre into the next decade and to see the influence of later styles of cinema on the Italian thriller. Most importantly, Mysterio demonstrates that the Italian thriller wasn't confined to the works of Bava and Argento and their contemporaries, but an ever-changing entity tied to emerging cinematic and stylistic changes, and Vancina perfectly embodies the changing culture of Italy in the early 1980s. That's perfect. I can't add anything to that. So that's us on the film. So so in the last patron episode, we talked about some of our favourite Jalo protagonists. And the, in the upcoming episode, we'll talk about some of our favourite antagonists. So if you want to hear that, just sign up for our patron to Chotisori level. And as we've previously mentioned, there's no pressure to become a patron. But if you want to support us in other ways, head on over to iTunes and give us a rating and or review. Or alternatively, give us a recommendation via the usual social media channels. And it's always lovely to see people tag us in their Instagram stories and tweet about the latest episode. So thank you. Yeah, shout out to Vivian in Red, who wrote a really nice review of the show on Swedish iTunes. So thank you very much for that if you're listening. As always, you can find us on social media. We're most active on Twitter, where you can find us as either Rachel underscore Nisbet or Senior Ward. Um, but you can also find us on Facebook slash Fragments Pod or on Instagram as Fragments Pod. Or you can mail us on fragmentspod at gmail.com. And as always, we'd like to thank the wonderful Ozarks for allowing us to use their cover of the theme to Seven Bloodstained Orchids as the Fragments of Fear music. And that's available to buy via their band camp. Thank you once again for listening to the show. We hope you enjoyed our take on Mystere. 
Keep an eye out on social media for details about May's episode. Um, as always, patrons will get an exclusive reveal in April's bonus episode. So all we have left to say is thank you, look after yourselves, stay safe, and goodbye. Bye.